Okay, Joshua chapter 15. Listen, guys, we are going to do something that has never, ever been done in the history of reality. Never been done before. Never, ever even been fathomed before. We today are going to cover seven chapters of the Bible today. Never been done before. Never even been thought of until now. This is amazing. So seven chapters we're going to cover, and you know me, so we better pray before we attempt this thing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your wonderful word. It's been so glorious here in the book of Joshua. It's just been wonderful. You have given us such wisdom for living. You've instructed us so beautifully in victorious Christian living, and your word has been for us what the prophet Jeremiah said it would be. It's been a fire and a hammer in our lives, setting us ablaze, purifying our hearts, hammering out things that shouldn't be there, strengthening us where we need strengthening. Your word's just been wonderful to us, Lord, and we ask that you just continue that work today as we talk about the spoils of the victory and the divisions of the land and Israel, at this juncture, they've had a lot of ups and downs, and our lives are very similar, Lord. You know us. We're just a easily distracted, messed up people, all sorts of hills and valleys and ins and outs, but now we come to the stability of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, and we ask that you would stabilize our lives, that you'd speak to us, Lord, in such a way that our lives would be transformed and changed for your glory. We want to be more like Jesus. Do a great work in our hearts. Holy Spirit, come and convict us. Train us. Rebuke us where we need rebuking. Equip us for every good work. Just do something in our hearts, Lord. And we ask together that you would please anoint me. I've never taught seven chapters before, Lord. We're actually a little terrified. So we ask that you would please anoint me to teach your word. I'm unable without you. So Holy Spirit, bless this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, we now get to this juncture in the word where the land is being divided up. And we talked about how this is a very important portion in the corporate life of Israel. It makes, as we've admitted, it makes for some tedious reading in these chapters as you go through and you read hundreds of place names and hundreds of cities and boundaries and you're not real familiar with them and you can't pronounce a lot of them and yet we understand it is the word of God. There's no deficiency in it. There's nothing wrong with it. It's really our own deficiency, you know what I mean. There's nothing wrong with it. It's wonderful and I myself have read every single word of these chapters, and you guys probably did too when you're going through the one-year Bible. Uh, we're not going to read every single word in our teachings. We just would be here a real long time, but we want to remember the importance of this moment in the corporate life of Israel. They've had seven years of warfare now, and now they're going to experience the spoils of that warfare. They're receiving their inheritance. They're dividing up the land. Prior to that, they had 38 years of wandering in the wilderness, Prior to that, they had 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And so this is a glorious moment. After hundreds of years of slavery and decades of wandering and seven years of war, now they're being brought into rest and into peace and they're receiving the fullness and the blessings and the inheritance of the Lord. And just as that's a glorious moment when it happens in your life and in my life, it's glorious for them. 
And so we don't want to miss that point. We also want to remember that what's recorded for us here are 3,500-year-old title deeds, these boundaries, the descriptions of the land that belonged to the various tribes. And just as the title deed that says that you own your property and your house is precious and important to you and something that you want to hold on to, this is precious and important to Israel. And as we'll see, there are portions of it that minister to our lives today. So let me say this. In chapter 15, Judah receives its inheritance. And Judah is the first of the 12 tribes to receive its inheritance on the west side of the Jordan. And Judas is the, or Judas, wow, forgive me, tribe of Judah. Judah is the largest tribe of the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. And so they get the largest inheritance. They've got 115 cities included in their inheritance in the land of Canaan. And the boundaries and the cities are all listed here in Joshua 15. And we'll just pop a map up for you. And you can just visually see the boundaries and what's included in their inheritance. And they receive some of the most fertile land in Israel. Remember in Numbers 13 when the spies went in to spy out the land and they went to the valley of Eshkol and they brought out of the valley those giant grapes and they had to carry them on two poles? Well, that area where they got those big old grapes is in the area that Judah inherited. So they inherit some wonderful uh, land, but they're also surrounded by some of the fiercest enemies and some of the strongholds of the enemy. And so we see that God would provide for Judah at this moment and in the future some of the greatest leaders in Israeli history. Caleb was the leader of Judah at this time, and David would be one of the future leaders of the tribe of Judah and, and the king of all of Israel. And the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, didn't he? The Messiah came from the tribe of Judah. We read that in Genesis 49, Matthew 1, Matthew 3, Luke 3, so on and so forth. And so there in chapter 15, we have the account of their inheritance. But I want to draw your attention to verse 63 of chapter 15. Where we read this, Joshua 15, verse 63. Now, as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem... The sons of Judah could not drive them out. So the Jebusites live with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day, the day that the book was written, the book of Joshua. That's a very important point for you and I. It says that the sons of Judah could not drive out the Jebusites. Now, in reality, they could have, couldn't they have? Because the Lord gave them the land, and the Lord told them to take possession of the land, and the Lord will never ask us to do anything that he's not willing to empower us to do, amen? God's commandments are his enablements, is one way that we might say it. And so it might be more correct to say they would not. They could not. Physically, perhaps they failed, but that's because they first failed in their hearts, they did not endeavor in their hearts to lay hold of all that the Lord had for them. They did not endeavor in their spirit to possess by faith every nook and cranny that the Lord had ordained for them. And so I think we need to ask ourselves in our own life, remembering that the land of Canaan is analogous to our Christian life and our Christian experience. And possessing the land of Canaan is analogous to our possessing all the promises of Jesus Christ by faith. And so when there's little areas of our life that haven't been brought into the submission or the lordship of Jesus Christ, when there's little areas where we haven't gotten the victory yet, 
Is it really because you can't or is it actually because you won't? Because you're not willing to press in. You're not willing to lay hold. You're not willing to deal with those areas. And if we're honest, we've all got those areas that we like to keep under our own lordship. But Jesus is Lord. And their failure here wasn't a lack of strength. The Lord would have provided them all the strength they needed. Their failure was a lack of faith. And so here we see that they get this glorious inheritance, but they didn't lay hold of every bit of it. And as we'll see in further studies, that's going to come back to get them. Now, in chapter 16, we have the tribe of Joseph receiving their allotment. And you'll remember that the tribe of Joseph was made up by two sub-tribes, his sons Ephraim and Manasseh, the half-tribe of Manasseh, the half-tribe of Ephraim, and we've talked about them a whole lot. And in chapter 16, Ephraim's borders and cities are listed, and we'll just put a map up so you can visually see the region that they inherited. And they received some of the most beautiful land in the land of Canaan. But we have verse 10. Verse 10 says, but they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites live in the midst of Ephraim to this day, and they became forced laborers. Now, if they were able to put them into forced labor, they would have been able to dispossess them of the land. They would have been able to move them out of the land. And I believe what we have here is a motivation of greed on the part of Ephraim. That they saw, listen, let's not drive these guys out. Let's use them as forced labor. And perhaps even let's lay heavy taxes upon them. Let's use them for gain. Why get rid of them entirely? And that made all the sense in the world, really except for it was contrary to what the Lord had told them to do. It was contrary to what the Lord said. The Lord said, you will drive out the inhabitants of the land. And here we see them disobeying the Lord, not for a lack of faith, like the tribe of Judah, but for the reason of greed in Ephraim. I have a quote here from Bible Knowledge Commentary. It says, Motivated by a materialistic attitude, they chose to put the Canaanites and Gezer under tribute to gain additional wealth. That proved to be a fatal mistake, for in later centuries, in the time of the judges, the arrangement was reversed as the Canaanites rose up and enslaved the Israelites. In addition to the historical lesson, there is a spiritual principle here. It is all too easy for a believer to tolerate and excuse some pet sin only to wake up someday to the grim realization that it has risen up to possess and drive him to spiritual defeat. It pays to deal with sin decisively and harshly. That is a radical truth. In their own wisdom, they thought, well, this will be to our benefit. This will be to our gain. And it was to their demise and their defeat in the future. Listen to me, saints. When the Lord tells you to deal with something, deal with it. It's often going to be difficult. It's often going to be painful. That pruning process, that refining process, that process of laying hold of the victory and pressing on to all that Jesus has for us, but it will bear much fruit. It will be worth the while, and the Lord has not left us alone, but he's given us the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. And 99% obedience is not obedience. Do you remember the story of Saul in 1 Samuel 15? 
God told them that he was to utterly destroy there the Amorites and all their livestock. And Saul thought, well, why would we kill the livestock? I mean, there's some really good stuff here. I think we could use it. And in fact, you know, we'll just sacrifice some of it to the Lord. No, the Lord said they were to get rid of it entirely. And again, he's leaning on his own understanding instead of acknowledging the Lord in all his ways. And so he says, I, I know that the Lord said through the prophet Samuel, we're to, we're to deal with everything here, but I think we should keep this little portion for ourselves and we'll even give a piece to the Lord. And Samuel the prophet comes into the area and he goes, Saul, why didn't you obey the Lord? And he says, I did obey the Lord. We took care of the people. He says, listen to me, then why do I hear the sounds of the animals in the background when you were told to eradicate them as well? Oh, the animals. I mean, we're going to give some of them to the Lord. And it's such nice livestock. And Samuel prophesied that the kingdom would be ripped from the hands of Saul because of his disobedience. There was a great demise because of that compromise. Now, he thought that 99% obedience was good enough. Listen, the Lord is an all-wise God. And he has our best in mind. And when he calls us to a specific task or to deal with something, it's because there's health and wellness and fullness and spiritual blessing in that place. And when we compromise, though it might seem wise in the moment, it usually spells our own destruction, our own defeat, as this tribe of Ephraim learned. In Numbers 33, if you want to turn back there real quick, it's just two books back from where we're at in Joshua. Keep your finger in Joshua 16. But in Numbers 33, the Lord had warned them of this fact through Moses, so they should have known better. Numbers 33, starting in verse 50. Numbers 33, 50, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. Okay, before they go in to take the land, before Joshua is the leader. Verse 51. The Lord tells Moses, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their molten images and demolish all their high places, okay, their pagan religions. And you shall take possession of the land and live in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. Past tense. It was already done. God had already accomplished it. They just needed to walk in it. Verse 54, and you shall inherit the land by lot according to your families. To the larger you shall give more inheritance, to the smaller you shall give less. Wherever the lot falls to anyone, this, uh, that shall be his. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. Now look in verse 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as pricks in your eyes and as thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land in which you live. And it shall come about that as I plan to do to them, so I will do to you. That's radical. The New Testament says it this way. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. Sow to the flesh, you're going to reap of the flesh. But sow to the Spirit, and you're going to reap of the Spirit. And he warned them. He said, if you let them remain, if you let them persist in the land, they're going to become like pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they're going to trouble you in the land in which you live. Now, it's amazing to me how wicked the heart of man is. 
How little faith we have, even as redeemed people of Jesus Christ. We read this and we all say, oh, wow. Yes and amen. I agree with that. And yet we all have these these strongholds that we just let ride. We all have these secret sins, these areas that we refuse to deal with, these little issues that we know it's rebellion to the Lord. We might be really good at rationalizing. We might be really good at at, at trying to just kind of talk it away and make up reasons. And we might have this sense of entitlement. So-and-so let me down, so I'm able to do this. My spouse doesn't do this, so I'm able to do this. I don't have that, so it's okay. So-and-so hurt me here, so that's why I do this. And the word of the Lord is, if you let that remain, it's going to come back to get you. And we've got to receive that by faith. And so today is a wonderful day to take stock of our lives. We've done it so many times. But last week was last week. This is now. Are there any areas in your life where the enemy's holding on and he's got no rights? Jesus is absolutely victorious. The enemy is a defeated foe. Don't give him any ground. We've said it so many times. So if there's any area like that in your life, today is a wonderful day to repent of that because the word of the Lord is God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. Now go back to Joshua. That's Joshua 16. Now we have Joshua 17. And remember that part of the tribe of Joseph was uh, the half-tribe of Manasseh. And we remember that that was the tribe that settled on the wrong side of God's promises, on the east side of the Jordan when they should have been on the west side. But they also did have some area that overlapped, an inheritance that overlapped into the west side of the Jordan. And the details of that are in chapter 17, and they're outlined on the map on the PowerPoint in front of you. But along the same lines of what we were just discussing, I want us to look in verses 12 and 13 of Joshua 17. Same story, different tribe. Verse 12 of Joshua 17. But the sons of Manasseh could not take possession of these cities because the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. And it came about when the sons of Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. There we see the same old story. Different tribes, same old story. It's a lot like our lives, isn't it? Same old story. But here we're given a little insight. It says that the enemy persisted. The enemy had some tenacity. The enemy was persistent. The enemy was unwilling to give up that ground, even though the power structure had been broken over the Canaanite kings. They were unwilling to give up that ground. Now, of course, as we said, that is analogous to our Christian life. The power structure of sin has been broken. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. But sometimes the enemy persists in areas of our life. But we're given a promise in James 4, 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Resist the devil and he will flee. The opposite side of that coin is entertain the devil and he'll cling to you. Allow him to continue to have that stronghold. Be flirtatious with his temptations and he's all too happy to cling. But resist him, and according to the word of God, by the cross of Jesus Christ, he will flee. 
The enemy will always persist, but we are called to resist. He'll always persist. Don't think he's going to give up easily. But we're called to resist him standing firm in our faith, standing upon the promises of the word of God. Holding fast to the person of the Holy Spirit and the power therein. By faith, laying hold of the fullness of the cross. And then we also have a way to persist, and that is in prayer. Jesus taught us in the New Testament that we are to pray with importunity. That's an old English word that means to insist with persistence. To insist with persistence. We are called to pray with importunity, to insist upon certain things before the throne of grace and to do it persistently like the persistent widow, to continually press in before the Lord. That's why we have weekly prayer meetings here and we'll pray the same thing all year long. I got no problem with persisting in prayer. We'll pray it over and over and over again because we are engaged in a battle. But guess what? Jesus is a victorious king. And I see that in our community that the gates are opening up and the king of glory is entering in. I see more and more of the Lord manifest in our community and the people therein. And so we are called to persist in prayer. We've got to be persistent because the enemy is tenacious. It says here that the enemy persisted and they weren't able to drive them out. And so the key to victory for you and I is to resist the devil and to persist in prayer. And that's sure victory. That's sure victory. That's not an if, it's a when. It's not if we'll get the victory, it's when. Remember, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. And our Lord is a victorious warrior, a victorious warrior who saves. Now, in verses 14 through 18, uh, let's just read that of, of chapter 17. It says, Then the sons of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, why have you given me only one lot and one portion for an inheritance since I am a numerous people whom the Lord has thus far blessed? And Joshua said to them, listen, if you're a numerous people, then go up to the forest and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and of the Rephaim since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. And the sons of Joseph said, but the hill country is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites who live in the valley land have chariots of iron, both those who are in Bethshan and its town and those who are in the valley of Jezreel. Verse 17, and Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh saying, you are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have only one lot, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it. And to its furthest borders, it shall be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, even though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. Now, this is an interesting little interplay here. The tribe of Joseph here was expressing their dissatisfaction with what they had. It's the first time in the dividing of the land that selfishness is made manifest. They're the first ones among Israel to get selfish and say, listen, this is not enough for us. We want more. And I love the response. Joshua says, you want more? Take more. Go ahead and get more. It's yours for the taking. Just go up to the hill country and clear the forest and you can have all that you want. But what do they say? Oh, the forest. No, that, that's too much for us. That's too difficult to do all the clearing there. But then down in the valley, the Canaanites, they've got the iron chariots. And so it's too difficult down there and it's too hard up there. And 
These are the kind of people, and we all know them, that will just will not be satisfied. No matter what's going on, they find a way to grumble and complain. They've got the Eve complex. The Lord said to Eve, of all the trees in the garden, you may eat except for this one. Satan comes along and says, Eve, what about that one? And she goes, yeah. What about that one? I want that one. All the trees in the garden you could have, but I want that one. And they receive their inheritance from the Lord, and they say, we want more. Well, I love the response. Then go get more. You're strong. You have strength. Go take it. You know what? There is always more of Jesus Christ for us. There is an unending supply of the person of Jesus Christ. Remembering that the land of Canaan is analogous to our Christian living, our Christian experience, and laying hold of all the promises that we have in Christ Jesus. They said, we want more. And Joshua said, well, go ahead and get it. Just go clear the forest. And you know what? Sometimes it's like that in our Christian life. At our prayer meeting this morning, we have a prayer meeting uh, every Sunday morning at 7.30. You guys should come and check it out sometime. At our prayer meeting this morning, Brother Mike prayed this. Lord, we ask that today you would fill us up and make us hungry for more of you. At the same time, that we would be both satiated and full and satisfied and yet longing for more. Now that is a right Christian experience. You get a bit of Jesus and you say, that is good, but I want more of that. Doesn't Psalm 34, 8 say, taste and see that the Lord is good? And so sometimes we come and say, Lord, thank you for what I have, but I want more of you, more of the blessings. I want the fullness of everything that you have for me. And Joshua's word to this tribe is a word of the Lord to you and I. Go take it. Just clear the land. Clear the land. Clear the land. What does that mean? Well, whatever stands between you and that intimacy with the Lord, get it out of the way. Whatever stands between you and all the blessings that the Lord has for you, get it out of the way. What is it? Some relationship that shouldn't be there? Deal with it. Some sin issue that shouldn't be there? Some apathy that shouldn't be there? Some greed that shouldn't be there? Some little seek? What is it? Clear the land and get the fullness. Joshua said, go up and clear the trees. You're a strong people. You can deal with it. And then they say, oh, but down in the valley of the chariots. I mean, they've got iron chariots. Wait a minute, Israel. You've dealt with iron chariots before. In chapter 11, you guys won against this conglomeration of nations from the north, and they had iron chariots and horses and stuff you never had, and the Lord gave you the victory. Now, if you've already gotten the victory one time from the Lord, why are you scared now? Don't you understand that God's past record is your future assurance? And don't you understand that Jesus has never let anybody down in the history of the universe? And he's not going to let you down now. He's already given you the victory in that area. Why don't you lay hold of it now? You guys already dealt with iron chariots by the grace of God. Why are you worried about the iron chariots now? And I love what Joshua says to him. Joshua says, you have great power. Go down and take the valley. Now the valley is representative of the difficult times in our lives. You know, those valley experiences. And we generally like the mountaintop experience more. You know what I mean? Mountaintop experience, just glory, just being with the Lord, you know, and just experiencing those blessings and just those times of ease. But those are a blessing, not the norm, really. Life is full of valleys, isn't it? But you'll notice that it's in the valley where the fruit is grown. We live in the Carpinteria Valley. It's world famous for its fertile soil. Some of the best soil on the face of the earth right here in the Carpinteria Valley. 
And we are famous for the fruit that is grown in this valley. And there are valleys in the Christian landscape, but it is in the valley where the fruit is grown. It's in those difficult places where the Lord teaches us so much. Martin Luther said, the best book in my library is affliction. The psalmist said, had I not been afflicted, Lord, I would not have learned to obey your commandments in Psalm 119. And those things happen in the valley experiences. And in the valley, yeah, there's big iron chariots. And there's gnarly battles there. But what did Joshua say to his people? He said, you have great power. And we have the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. We've got a real big God. And so those are little tiny iron chariots. And in the valley is where the victory is experienced in such a wonderful way. And I just want you to notice that the sons of Joseph here, they had the opposite mindset of Caleb. Remember Caleb from last week? What did Caleb say? Caleb said, Joshua, give me the gnarliest gig. The gnarliest place, that's what I want. The hills of Hebron, where the sons of Anakim are, where the giants are, where that stronghold of the enemy is. I want the hills of Hebron. I want to experience the victory of the king in that place. And then the Josephites come and say, well, we kind of want it easy and we want a little bit more. There's both people in the Christian life and God will deal with both of you. He loves you so much. You want more of him, he'll give you more. You're willing to go take the hills of Hebron, he'll be with you to take the hills of Hebron. Do you have to deal with some iron chariots in the valley? The Lord is faithful. Remember when they were in the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, and the Lord opened up a door of hope for them there? The Lord will do that for you. You find yourself in this radical valley of trouble, the Lord will open up a door of hope. He's a redeemer and the savior and the deliverer who daily bears our burdens, amen? That's chapter 17. Chapter 18. In verse 1, something very significant happens. Chapter 18, verse 1. Then the whole congregation of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. Now, this is something significant that happens. Joshua moves all the people from Gilgal, which has been their headquarters and where the dividing of the land is taking place, to an area 20 miles northwest called Shiloh. And Shiloh was a place that was centrally located in the land of Canaan, the land of inheritance that they were receiving. And at Shiloh, they set up the tent of meeting. Now, the tent of the meeting is a place where the Lord said, I will meet with my people. Lord said, you gather at this tent of meeting, and there I will be. And that was the place of worship, the place of sacrifice. That's where the Holy of Holies was, and the Ark of the Covenant, and the manifest presence of God, and Shekinah glory, all that stuff. That was the place that they will meet with God. Why is it now that Joshua says to the whole nation, let's pick up, we're hiking 20 miles to the north, we're going to Shiloh, we're going to set up the worship structure, and that means we're going to worship the Lord in the middle of the land. Why now? Well, because for the first time in the dividing of the land, selfishness manifests itself in the sons of Joseph. Up until that time, it's been smooth sailing. People have gotten their land, praise the Lord. Okay, Caleb, I'll take this. Okay, Judah, I'll take this. And now all of a sudden, there's been selfishness manifest in the midst of it. And so Joshua is a good leader, sees that the people need to get centered on the Lord once again. So he says, we're going to Shiloh to meet with Jesus. We're going to set up the tent of meeting. We're going to make the Lord the center again. Remember when they came across the Jordan and the ark was in the center? Remember when they marched around Jericho and the ark was in the center? 
Remember that it spoke to them that the God of Israel was to be the, the focus of the life of Israel. And sometimes it's just easy to get our eyes off of that reality. And they got their eyes off of this reality. And so now they find themselves in Shiloh there to worship the Lord. And I'm sure that they were antsy to get on with the inheritance. There's a lot of tribes that haven't gotten their inheritance yet. I'm sure that many of them were saying, come on, what's up? Well, what are we doing? Well, we're going to stop. We're going to worship the Lord. We're going to get focused. Out at the men's retreat this weekend, out at the islands, um, got back last night at about midnight from that, and the men are still out there. And there's a guy who just got saved. And uh, he got saved at our first Thursday night meeting this summer, where we're talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And so I didn't give a gospel message or anything like that. Uh, he works at a grocery store in Santa Barbara. He's the facilities guy at a grocery store. And one of the girls in our congregation that works up there has been witnessing to a little bit and invited him to Thursday nights. Now, Thursday nights, you know what I mean? That's like the Holy Roller night. It's, you know, it's the afterglow and it's waiting on the spirit and there's, you know, prophecies given and people are getting healed and all this stuff. And had she come to me and said, hey, should I invite this non-believer to Thursday nights? I'd be like, well, I don't know, maybe Sunday or wait for Easter. I'm not, you know, harvest, you know what I mean? But no, she brought him to Thursday nights. And I just sat down and we just talked about the gifts and the Holy Spirit moved and this guy got saved that night. He got radically saved. You know those gnarly being saved where like their whole countenance changes in a day where they just look different? Well, this man got radically saved. And he's out at the island trip this weekend and we had a time of sharing, you know, 65 men and we're just sitting down sharing our hearts and stuff like that. And this brand new Christian said, hey, I know I've been saved for eternity, but at my job, I feel like I need to be saved daily in my circumstances. I said, really? And he said, yeah. About halfway through the day, I go into my janitor's closet and I shut the door behind me and I lock it and I get on my knees and I pray to Jesus. I said, right on. You are a very mature six-week-old believer. I wish more men of God would do that. He said, in the middle of the day, I just get focused on Jesus. I go into my closet, I lock the door, and I pray to him. And this guy's got a radical walk with the Lord. I mean, he's the real deal. And so Israel finds themselves in Shiloh needing to get centered on the Lord before they can proceed. We've got to be careful to do that in our lives. And notice the last phrase there, verse 1. It says, and the land was subdued before them. That Hebrew word is the word kavash. The land was subdued before them. It means that it was put in subjection. It was enslaved. It was overcome. It was put into bondage. I mean, it was absolutely theirs for the taking. That's a wonderful analogy for the Christian life. It is all the blessings of Christ Jesus are just ours for the taking. They just need to get centered on the Lord here a little bit, but the land was subdued before them. Let's recall the memory, uh, to memory Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, past tense, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, they were already told in Joshua 1 that the land was theirs. All they needed to do was possess it. But now they're experiencing the reality of that. And they're finding that in the midst of laying hold of that theological truth, they've got to stop and get centered. But the land is subdued before them. It's theirs for the taking. Just get with the Lord. It's theirs. Let's remember 2 Peter 1.3. 
seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. We already have everything that we need for this life and for the life to come, for life and for godliness. Through the true knowledge, that word in the Greek is the word epinosis. It speaks of clear, exact, experiential knowledge. It's a kind of knowledge where uh, it's participatory knowledge. It's a kind of knowledge where you roll up your sleeves and you get into the object. Participation on the part of the subject in the object. Rolling up your sleeves and getting into the person of Jesus Christ. We have everything we need for life and godliness according to the epinosis of Jesus Christ. That clear, exact, experiential dig-in, dive-in toward a knowledge, sort of knowledge. And I just want to encourage us. That when selfishness sets in, get centered on the Lord and dive in deep because the land of blessing is already subdued before you. Tetelestai, it is paid in full, it is finished, it is accomplished. And I'll confess before you guys, I'm a selfish man. I could be as selfish as any man in here. I can be selfish with my possessions. I could be selfish in my marriage. I could be selfish in front of my kids. I can be selfish in my workplace. I can be selfish in all sorts of ways. And when that sets in, and it's just about hourly, I realize I need to get centered on the Lord. I need to go to Shiloh and set up that tent of meeting, so to speak. You know, sometimes when I get selfish in my marriage, my wife and I have a, a little deal with each other that we can just tell each other like it is. It's a good deal. In love, speak the truth in love. And sometimes when I'm being selfish, she'll just look at me and go, wow, you need to read your Bible, bro. <laughs> and I know just what she's talking about. And that sets a brother straight just like that. I mean, I know just what she's saying. And that's exactly right. I need to connect with the person of Jesus and be set free from that selfishness that I might experience the fullness of blessings of my marriage. Amen. Now, in verses 2 through 3, we find that for some reason, there was a hesitation in some of the tribes. Verse 2, and there remained among the sons of Israel seven tribes who had not divided their inheritance. So Joshua said to the sons of Israel, how long will you put off entering to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given to you? For some reason, these seven tribes were hesitating in taking the possession of the land. I don't know why it was that they were hesitating. The text doesn't tell us. Perhaps they were like us and that they were afraid of change. That's a pretty normal thing. We often get afraid of change. Even good change could seem threatening to us. You know, it's weird as people, we can get comfortable in the most disgusting places. If you're comfortable there, you're comfortable there, and that's all there is to it. And the Lord might want to deliver you from that place and bring you into change. And sometimes there's a hesitation. I mean, we could get comfortable in our bitterness. And the Lord is saying, I want to deliver you from that. I want to bring you into freedom. I want to give you joy that is complete. And we often resist that change. We can get comfortable in the most heinous of sins, the most disgusting things. And because it's familiar, it's comfortable. And the Lord says, man, I want to set you free from that. I want to break those chains that have you bound up in that filth. And we resist because it's comfortable. We can even get comfortable. I've discovered some people in abuse. 
they're in some abusive situation. Or maybe they haven't been abused for years. But the residual effects are still made manifest in their lives, and it's all they've ever known. It's become for them some sick little place of comfort, and Jesus wants to set you free today. Don't be bound by that. Jesus breaks the chains that bind. The cross of Jesus Christ deals with those things. Every sin that you've ever sinned and every sin that was ever committed against you, the cross of Jesus Christ is greater than those things. So perhaps they've gotten comfortable in warfare, comfortable in wandering in the wilderness. I don't know what the situation was, but the Lord was wanting to bring them out of wandering into stability, out of warfare into peace. And so in verse 3, Joshua says, what are you doing? How long are you going to put off entering and taking possession of the land which the Lord has given you? Don't hesitate. Lay hold of it today. And I believe that's a word for many of us. Don't deal with that anymore. Be done with it today in Jesus' name. Amen? In verses 4 through 9, uh, Joshua sends in three men from each one of those seven tribes to make a topographical survey of the land. 21 men go in and do that. And then they come out, and we read in verse 9. So the men went out and passed through the land and described by the cities in seven divisions in a book. And they came to Joshua at the camp at Shiloh. Then Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua divided up the land to the sons of Israel according to their divisions. Now, we referenced this last week. The land was divided up by the casting of lots. In the casting of lots, there are various methodologies that they would employ. But it was basically like rolling the dice or, you know, drawing straws, or choosing names from a hat. We're just going to kind of leave it up to chance, and we'll just throw the dice, or draw a name out of the hat. And according to Jewish tradition, what they did here was they had one container with a list of boundaries in it, and one with different tribes in it, and they would draw out the tribe, and then they would draw out the boundaries, and then that would be how it was determined the land that they received. It was a casting of lots. But we need to understand that for them at this time, it wasn't being left up to chance. It was being left to sovereignty. Proverbs 16.33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. It was a method for them by which God exercised his sovereignty in assigning the boundaries to the various tribes. And it was very nice of the Lord to do that. Can you imagine, knowing the Israelites, can you imagine the political wrangling that would have taken place if they had to negotiate boundaries with each other? It was very kind of the Lord to exercise his sovereignty to assign the boundaries. And it was very wise of them to leave it up to the Lord. Joshua says, you know how we're going to do this? We're going to cast lots. We're just going to leave it up to the Lord. And this was a very common methodology In the Old Testament, we see it in Leviticus 16, Nehemiah 10, Esther 3, Jonah chapter 1, to determine who the one on the boat who was rebelling against God was. Very common in the Old Testament. And God worked through the casting of lots. Now, we even see it in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 1, the very beginning of the church period, remember that Judas was no longer in the picture, but they had to replace him. And so they cast the lots. They said a prayer. Lord, you know what we need. And they cast the lot. And the lot fell to Matthias. And he became then the 12th disciple. And so God worked his sovereignty through that even one time in the New Testament. But I'll say this, only that time. 
There's not another time in the New Testament where we see the casting of lots as a methodology to experience the sovereignty of God. We never see it again after that time. Why? Because in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. And not every Israelite in the Old Testament has the Holy Spirit as every believer has today, or had the Holy Spirit, excuse me. And so in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out, and then later on in history, we have the canonization or the completion of Scripture, and then we also have then in Scripture the New Testament promise that the peace of God will function as an empire for you and I. Empire? Excuse me, umpire. That calls fair or foul. And so the New Testament Christian doesn't cast lots anymore. Same principle, we do leave it up to the Lord, but different methodology. Instead of the casting of lots or the drawing of straws, we have the person of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and the peace of Jesus Christ. Jesus said about the Holy Spirit in John 16, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. And then it says in Romans eight fourteen, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So we have the Holy Spirit to lead us, and then we have the Word of God. Psalm 119, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light into my path. And Colossians chapter 3 tells us that we are to let the word of Christ dwell richly within us. And so we have the spirit of God and the word of God, and then we have the peace of God. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. When it says their rule, it means to act as umpire, calling out fair or foul in an instance. And we've talked about this extensively in a previous sermon in our study of Colossians 3.15, and you could go get that on the website. I won't belabor it here. But I'll just say this, that if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you. And because of Jesus Christ's redemption of you, you have a certain abiding peace. And when there is a disturbance in that peace, you're heading in the wrong direction. But when that peace abides and the word of God agrees, you're probably heading in the right direction. Let the peace of God act as umpire, rule in your hearts and be thankful. Come before the Lord with a thankful heart, with a prayerful attitude and with the word of God open. And when you head in the right direction, that peace will abide. If you're going in the wrong direction, I found always there's a disturbance in that peace. And I have found without exception, when I go against the peace, I get in trouble. And I've done it a lot of times. And I'm learning very slowly, don't go against the peace of Christ in my heart. Amen? So no casting a lots for us. I don't want to see you guys doing that. And then in the rest of chapter 18, we have the description of the portion of land that fell to the tribe of Benjamin. And that's chapter 18. Wow, we're almost done. Praise the Lord. Chapter 19. Now in chapter 19, verses 1 through 9, we have the territory of Simeon. It's on the map. In verses 10 through 16, we have the territory of Zebulun on the map. 17 through 23, the territory of Issachar, map. 
Verses 24 through 31, the territory of Asher on the map. Verses 32 through 39, Nephtali outlined on the map. Verses 40 through 48, the territory of Dan outlined on the map. And then there's a northern portion where they said, we want a little more. And they went up there and they took it by force. And that's cool. We'll visit that when we go on a trip to Israel and learn that story. And now we come to verse 49 of chapter 19. When they finished apportioning the land for inheritance by its borders, the sons of Israel gave an inheritance in their midst to Joshua, the son of Nun. In accordance with the command of the Lord, they gave him the city for which he asked, Timnath Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim. So he built the city and settled in it. What a wonderful moment for Joshua. He's been such a great leader for Israel, and he's been an awesome warrior. He's been an awesome commander. He's been a great exhorter, and he's been a good administrator, and now he's a builder. At the end of his life, he's just about 110 years old at this point. He goes, and he settles that region, and he builds a city, and the sons of Israel gave him a special portion. And now verse 51. These are the inheritance Inheritances which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel distributed by Lot and Shiloh before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. And now the map behind you has the various divisions all together at one, every tribe in a different color. So you can just see the division of the land there and how they settled it and possessed it. And it was a glorious day in Israel when they did so. After all that warfare, after all that wandering, they got to settle down and raise their families. What a beautiful thing to see the fulfillment of the promises of God. A time of rest and peace and blessing, at least for a while. Now, in chapter 20, we have something called the cities of refuge. The cities of refuge are very important, obviously, in that they're mentioned in four different places in the Old Testament. Exodus 21, Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 19, and right here in Joshua chapter 20. And you could study those passages that are on the PowerPoint right now if you want a further understanding of the cities of refuge, but basically it was this. If somebody in Israel committed manslaughter, either an Israelite or a foreigner, in that day, the uh, vengeance by blood was the normal protocol. And so you might accidentally kill somebody while farming. You know, you're there and you're, you got the sickle and you're cutting down the wheat and whoop, lopped off that guy's head. Oh, no. And so you accidentally kill him. You didn't mean to. It wasn't premeditated. It wasn't murder. But what the normal protocol was in that culture at that time was their next to kin was going to come and kill you. And that's what happened. It wasn't murder. It was just manslaughter. It was accidental. No matter what, there was blood vengeance that was taken. And so God establishes wanting to break the cycle of violence in in the community. God establishes cities of refuge where those who have accidentally killed someone else could come to one of these six cities in Israel. And there he could say, look, there was an accident. This guy died. And he could seek refuge and await a trial in that place. And he would see protection there. God is in the society breaking the cycle of violence. Remember, these are ancient people, a violent people. God is, is teaching them about the sanctity of life by establishing a place of refuge where even though they've made a mistake, they can be safe. Now, Jesus has established the same thing in our society. It's the churches in a community where even when somebody makes a horrible mistake and the enemy is pursuing them and hounding them 
and there, there's going to be tremendous consequences for that mistake, there is a place where they could come into refuge. And that's what the church is to be for people. A city, a place of refuge. And that's what the individual members of the church are supposed to be for people in representing Jesus Christ. To bring rest and peace and safety and forgiveness to a society. To break the cycle of violence. And to uphold the sanctity of life. That's the obligation of the church in the church age. And now, our very last chapter, chapter 21. And we'll just read verses 1 through 3. Then the heads of the households of the Levites approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And they spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan saying, the Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to live in with their pasture lands for our cattle. So the sons of Israel gave the Levites from their inheritance these cities with their pasture lands according to the command of the Lord. So remember the Levites? Remember that the Lord was their portion? They didn't have a big allotment of land but they did receive these certain cities. And the Levites receiving these cities was the crowning act of the distribution of the land. And what is neat, if you go through and you look at the geography of where the cities that they got to live in were established, you'll see that nobody living in Israel was more than 10 miles away from a population of the Levitical priests. That's important. Everybody was near to a place where the priests were dwelling. And that was important because Moses had told the priests in Deuteronomy 33.10 that they were to teach the ordinances to Israel and the law of God to Israel. They were to instruct people about their God. And so God distributed them throughout the land so that all of Israel might receive the instruction of the word of God and the ministry of the Levitical priests. Now, it was very important that they continued to receive instruction in the word of God. They didn't have copies like we do today. That wasn't available to each and every one of them. And so it was very important that the Levites would instruct the people because if they, the people, didn't know the word of God, they would not continue to have success in the land. Remember Joshua 1 in these verses? The Lord said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be very strong and courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Their success and well-being in the land depended upon their obedience to the word. And to a large degree, so does ours. The land was already theirs, but they took it as they obeyed the word. Every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ is already ours. But we lay hold of it by faith as we obey the word. And we'll just read these last couple verses and we're done. Verse 43, chapter 21. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. 
And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. And look at this. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All of them came to pass. That is glorious. Our God is a faithful God. He was faithful to them then, and he will be faithful to you now. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for this great and wonderful testimony of your word. We thank you that we can rejoice today that you really are faithful. And Lord, we thank you that for us, you're faithful even when we're faithless. And Lord, we've seen many times where the Israelites blew it, and we, we blow it really a lot more than we want maybe more than we're even willing to admit. But you're a great and faithful God. And so help us today, Holy Spirit, to return fully to the God of our salvation. Help us with those areas where we're unwilling to drive out sin, where the enemy is persisting, where because of greed we're compromising. Oh, Lord, help us with these areas. You know our wayward hearts. You know our weakness. But we know your promises. Lord, would you meet us? Thank you for the promise that when we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Jesus, you told us that we ought to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Your servant Peter said, Repent, therefore, that times of refreshing may come from being in the presence of the Lord. Church, Repentance is one of the most beautiful words you'll ever hear. It means to change direction when you're going the wrong way. It means to follow after the Lord and not the world and not yourself. Lord, help us to do that today. Help us to repent. Help us to lay hold of all the fullness in you. If you need help today, the prayer team is up here to your left. They're powerful in prayer. They'll intercede at the throne of grace for you. You want to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, it's a good idea. You can come and get on your face today. And communion is here to remember his faithfulness.